Good evening um, to another LSE Full House at the Old Theatre and welcome to the first lecture in this year's Ralph Miliband Lecture Series on Oil, Energy, Security and the Global Order. I have a range of speakers coming in the, this term and next term from diverse backgrounds in order to explore the concerns that we um, uh, outline in the title of this series from a number of different pr approaches. And just to mention now, I have um, and Nicholas Stern will be talking uh, later in the term, Michael Clare, David Miliband, next term, and many others besides. This evening's lecture could not be more relevant and could not be from a person who has more experience in the world of oil and energy. Lord Brown will speak to the title, The Past, Present and Future of Oil, although I gather his remarks will be somewhat focused on future considerations. Lord Brown was born in 1948 and holds a degree in physics from Chemistry University and MS in business from Stanford University, California. He has practically more honorary degrees than I can count, from universities across the world. He's an honorary fellow of St. John's College, Cambridge, a senior member of St. Anthony's College, Oxford, and in addition, he holds several, notably several other major fellowships and professional appointments. He has had a long and distinguished career in business. Between 1969 and 1983, he held a variety of exploration and production posts. In 1984, he became Group Treasurer and Chief Executive of BP Finance International. Following the merger of BP and Amoco, he became Group Chief Executive on December the 31st, 1998, until very recently. His career has led to many awards, including being voted the most admired CEO by Management Today for three years consecutively. He was knighted in 1998 and made a life peer in 2001, and he sits in the House of Lords as a crossbencher. Among his current positions, he is President of the Royal uh, Academy and Managing Director of Riverstone. Lord Brown has had an extraordinary career, and in any such career, there are bound to be controversial moments. He will welcome questions on the themes of his presentation and on those topics that overlap. Please join with me in giving him a very warm welcome. David, ladies and gentlemen, good evening. I've been asked to speak this evening on uh, the subject of the past, present and future of oil, which of course is an impossibly broad topic. And so with your permission, I'd like to devote my remarks to an even broader subject, uh, the past, present and future of energy. Th there's nothing special about oil. The only constants when it comes to energy are people's desires to, for heat, for light, and mobility, economics, politics, and technology, which are constantly changing, determine the energy options that are chosen by society to serve those ends. That said, many of my comments this evening will be about oil, because oil's been the, most, the world's most important energy commodity in the recent past, and remains so in the present. During the 40 years I've spent in the energy business, I've lived through at least three major dislocations, periods of change and uncertainty when the rules of the game shifted. First, there was the rise of OPEC in the 1970s. Those of us in the Seven Sisters 
had to adapt to a, a new world of resource nationalism then, a world where we were suddenly price takers and our old integrated hierarchical models no longer made sense. We had no choice but to pack our bags and start exploring back home. Then there was the surge of oil from Alaska and the North Sea in the 1980s. OPEC was put on the back foot, its share of world production declining from more than 50% in the late in the 70s to about 30% a decade later. This was the beginning of the consumer age, a time of abundant supplies from multiple sources. And finally, there's the last few years. Strong demand and lack of investment have contributed to OPEC gaining a much more powerful position once more. And what next? It's always difficult to recognize when times are truly changing, but I believe we're entering another period of energy dislocation today, caused by the confluence of high fossil fuel prices, growing concern about energy security, fears about climate, and broadening energy choices. The present energy dislocation is a thoroughly modern event, the product of a world that's become increasingly sophisticated and interlinked, but more volatile and, and anarchic. And I'm struck by both the magnitude of the changes taking place and by the degree of uncertainty and complexity surrounding us. I'm also struck by the sheer number of new actors now appearing on the energy stage. It seems as if it's almost everybody, but it's policymakers from multiple ministries, businesses of every kind, scientists and academics, and the public. It's important to explain what's going on, but I believe we're quite long on analysis currently and rather short on recommendations about what to do in response. And I think a nautical metaphor is probably appropriate. We're sailing into unknown and choppy seas. There's a maelstrom of currents, which of course we must try to understand and anticipate. But we also need beacons, fixed points that help us to navigate. And I believe there are four beacons that business leaders should keep in mind when navigating in today's new energy world. And after briefly setting the scene, it's on these points that I'd like to focus my remarks this evening. But first, the currents that are swirling around us. There are almost as many ways of analyzing today's energy world as there are analysts. My own preferred approach is to look at four trends that have come together in recent years. First, high fossil fuel prices. Second, increasing fears about energy security. Third, growing concern about the environment. And fourth, technology innovation. Of course, these currents are all interrelated, but let me talk about each one individually. When it comes to fossil fuel prices, I'm going to devote my remarks to oil, and that's because oil price remains the most important driver of energy economics, the benchmark against which many other energy sources are priced. The price of oil, adjusted for inflation, has averaged about $60 between 2004 and today. Between the year 2000 and to 2004, it was half today's figure, or that figure, I should say. High oil prices result from the coming together of several factors. On the supply side, 
we've witnessed limited spare production capacity caused by years of underinvestment. This has coincided with growing concern over the dependability of key producing nations, which I'll talk about more in a few minutes. The fear that supplies could be disrupted has created a so-called risk premium. At the same time, OPEC is in a disciplined phase, and the market believes it would act to restrict supplies if prices were to fall off significantly. Another underappreciated supply-side factor has been the recent increases in oil production costs. The IHS SERA Upstream Capital Cost Index, it's a way of measuring these costs, indicates that equipment costs have roughly doubled between 2000 and today. As a result, Goldman Sachs now estimates that the marginal 4 million barrels a day of oil production in the world costs an average of $70 a barrel to produce. Of course, some of the recent cost increase is a result of cyclical increases in import costs, steel and skilled labor, for example, and these pressures could well ease, ease over time. But there's a more fundamental cost dynamic at play. The fact is that non-OPEC oil is becoming technically more difficult to produce as low-cost fields are depleted and increasingly sophisticated technology is deployed to exploit less accessible reserves. This factor alone implies that long-run marginal costs will stay high and push higher over time, which I believe will place a firm foundation under oil prices for the foreseeable future. On the demand side, demand for oil has been strong, driven predominantly by the booming Asian economies. Taking a longer-term view, demand is expected to remain robust, underpinned by the anticipated growth in the global population from 6 billion today to 8 billion by 2030, and by continuing global economic development. The second trend is rising energy insecurity, which is really a blanket term for three different types of fear. First, there's the concern that unforeseen events could disrupt oil supplies in the short term. Second, there's a concern that oil production will peak <coughs> in the foreseeable future. And third, there are concerns stemming from the <coughs> geographic concentration of oil and gas resources. I believe the concerns about supply disruptions and peak oil are greatly exaggerated. The concentration of resources in particular areas is, however, real. More than 75% of the world's proved oil reserves are now located in three regions, Africa, Russia and the, Russia and the Caspian, and the Persian Gulf. And more than 50% of the world's proved natural gas reserves are in just three countries, Russia, Iran, and Qatar. In many of those countries, the oil and gas industry is state-controlled. Outside investment is restricted, if it's permitted at all. The politics surrounding resource concentration are increasing. Some energy-rich countries are using their energy resources as an instrument of foreign policy, reminding customers that they can cut off supplies to extract concessions. Competition for spoils has also compounded civil unrest in some countries such as Nigeria and Iraq and resource concentration 
has become closely bound up in broader geo-economic trends which are further unsettling governments. For example, petrodollars are being channeled into sovereign wealth funds controlled by oil and gas-rich states. According to the Peterson Institute for International Economics, funds controlled by countries in the Persian Gulf alone are now worth more than $1 trillion. Many people estimate very much more higher than that uh, to $1 to $3 trillion. Their pursuit of investments in OECD countries is, of course, creating friction. Because of the political concerns associated with resource concentration, governments all over the world are increasingly seeking so-called self-sufficiency, or failing that, they're looking to state-to-state arrangements to secure supplies. The third current contributing to today's energy shift is increasing concern about the environment. Hydrocarbon consumption in rapidly developing countries such as India and China is causing poor air quality and local environmental damage. And those nations are now following developed countries by placing increasingly stringent controls on pollutants such as sulfur dioxide and NOx. Climate change is literally a higher level problem and one that threatens the entire ecosystem. In the past few years, an overwhelming scientific consensus has emerged that greenhouse gas emissions from fossil fuels and land use are having dramatic effects on the world's climate system. The issue of climate change is catching fire with the public response described by some commentators as the civil rights movement of our generation. Businesses are now taking action in response to climate change ranging from supermarkets offsetting their carbon emissions to the huge increases in investment in low-carbon technologies. National governments are moving from rhetoric to putting in place long-term targets and, over time, fiscal and regulatory policies designed to promote low-carbon technologies and encourage energy efficiency. And at the global level, The UNFCCC is running talks on a successor to the Kyoto Treaty with the prospect of a framework that includes global, regional and national emissions reduction targets. The fourth major trend is technology innovation. Because of high prices, energy insecurity and environmental concerns, society is increasingly demanding energy that is sourced and delivered differently. And the brightest and the best from biology, physics and engineering, are turning their attention to doing just that. There are now 1,400 renewable energy venture capital funds, for example, which are investing $8 billion a year. Total investment in renewable energy, which includes more developed technologies such as wind and first-generation biofuels, now exceeds $100 billion US dollars a year. As these technologies scale up, their costs come down, meaning they are becoming increasingly economic alternatives. The coincidence of the four currents I've just described explains why we find ourselves in a period of churn and uncertainty today. Of course, these factors aren't independent from one another. In fact, they exist in a relationship of complex interdependency. For example, 
high oil and gas prices are partly being caused by concern about resource concentration, yet energy insecurity is also being heightened by the high oil and gas prices. Technology innovation is mitigating the cost of both low-carbon and high-carbon energy simultaneously, and climate change may result in societal disruptions such as population movements or water shortages, further accentuating security concerns. In a world of complex interdependency, there are trade-offs, and that's indeed true of the energy sector today, and let me give you a few examples. As oil and gas prices have risen, coal has become increasingly economic. It's also viewed favorably from an energy security perspective in key consuming countries such as China, India, and the United States, because they've got abundant indigenous reserves. The trade-off is that coal is also the single biggest source of man-made carbon emissions. Another example is Britain's dash for gas, which has helped lower the UK's emissions profile, but has resulted in far greater vulnerability to foreign gas supplies. And finally, oil production from the Canadian tar sands is helping reduce North America's dependence on foreign oil. But but it's also leaving a dramatic footprint on the local environment. So we're in a world of complex energy trade-offs. And in response, I detect the emergence of a new energy realpolitik, epitomized in the title of the recent U.S. National Petroleum Council report, Facing the Hard Truths About Energy. So where do the business opportunities lie in such a world? What is this world? The first thing to say is that I believe all energy sources, high carbon and low carbon, will grow side by side for quite a period of time. That's inevitable given the sheer scale of the increase in future energy demand. According to the latest IEA World Economic Outlook reference scenario, there will be a 55% increase in global energy demand between now and 2030. However, as always, the smart money will look to those sectors with the greatest rate of growth, and where these opportunities lie will depend on the dynamic of the underlying currents I've talked about. The challenge is that how those currents will develop and how they will combine remains highly uncertain, particularly during today's period of dislocation. They will differ between countries, and they will differ over time. For example, climate change is currently a relatively stronger influence in Europe than the United States, where energy security concerns decidedly prevail. That explains why Europe was the first region to adopt a binding carbon policy and why the Bush administration has focused its efforts on promoting biofuels rather than on power sector initiatives that would offer greater carbon savings. However, the picture is changing. Climate change appears to be becoming more important in the U.S. over time, led by growing public concern and NGO activism. And energy security is rising up the political agenda in Europe as Russia tightens its grip on regional gas supplies. Both trends, if indeed they continue, would ultimately result in a chain set of opportunities. So if winning participation strategies are not easy to find today, 
where do the real opportunities lie for energy in the future? At this stage in the evolution of the industry, I don't believe it's possible to pick winning options. We simply don't know what the winners will be, and guesswork is never a great business, a great basis for sound business. But even if the destination is uncertain, I believe we can make progress by following certain principles. And I see this as being akin to navigating a course through rough and uncertain seas. The principles we must follow, and I believe there are four important ones, are like beacons that show us the way. The first beacon is flexibility, the ability to adapt and respond quickly to change. Flexibility is about maintaining a portfolio of options and knowing which to scale up and which to shut down and when. Look, for example, at the recent history of the telecoms industry, which has gone through its own period of discontinuity and change. The companies that have prospered were not those who bet on one option, 3G, fiber optic, infrastructure, or dot-com, but those that have maintained a portfolio of options. And there's now a similar need for flexibility in the market for renewable and alternative energy. The suite of options is wide-ranging, wind, solar, hydro, geothermal, wave, geothermal, wave power, conventional biofuels, advanced biofuels, carbon capture and storage, and so on. Today, some of those technologies have a clear advantage. Wind, for example, is competitive in several markets where there's favorable weather, strong demand, and good transmission systems. Solar is less advantaged, but that could change quickly if there are technological breakthroughs in cell manufacture or thin film technology, or if high consumer demand for distributed energy leads to greater economies of scale. Commercial scale power plants that use carbon capture and storage to eliminate most of their greenhouse gas emissions have been envisaged for years, but as yet they remain on the drawing board. However, if prototypes are built and succeed, this technology could take off. CCS has enormous business potential because it would enable large economies such as the US and China to burn their vast reserves of coal for electricity without the unsustainable environmental impact that this has today. So flexibility in energy as well as in other industries means understanding future options and investing judiciously. Methodical and dispassionate analysis is required. And this is how we start to assemble an accurate vision of the future, rather than one that's based on the past, because the past is only at best a rough guide to that future. The second beacon I want to talk about is the ability to work in collaborative networks. Companies don't exist in hermetically sealed bubbles. Their work is connected in multiple ways to that of other actors, including governments, NGOs, consumers, and the public. In an increasingly interconnected world, business can't make progress <coughs> without understanding these other players and working closely alongside <coughs> them. A collaborative approach starts with deeper customer relationships, and leading companies have realized that their customers are also their best designers. These companies are involving thousands of customers in researching new product ideas, collating the different experiences quickly and efficiently. As businesses become ever larger and more international, they are increasingly coming into contact with some of the world's most challenging issues. 
climate change, poverty, human rights abuses, and the depletion of natural resources. The smart companies have realized two things. First, they can't ignore such issues. And secondly, they can't respond alone. They don't have the expertise, the contacts, or rather more importantly, the credentials. And so over the last two decades, we've seen a remarkable growth in cooperation between business, governments, and NGOs to confront some of these issues. To give two, just two examples, the Forestry Stewardship Council is ensuring that timber sold commercially comes from sustainable sources, and the equator pin principles are ensuring that large project finance construction projects in developing countries meet high environmental and social standards. The oil industry is seeing old relationships being recast. In the early days, the relationships formed between resource-holding governments and Western oil companies had a colonial air to them. The dynamics of that relationship changed radically in the 70s when governments <coughs> took control of their resources and national oil companies emerged. Today, those national energy companies are extremely significant players and differences have emerged between them. Some act as if they were the energy arm of governments. Others act more independently. You just need to compare the role of Gazprom with the approach of Petrobras in Brazil as it seeks to export its biofuels capabilities internationally. Relationships between IOCs and NOCs will differ over time as energy markets, politics, technologies and the landscape of project opportunities evolve. The third beacon is energy efficiency. I believe efficiency's starring role in our energy future is the only real certain bet we can make. It's certain because energy security sits at the intersection of all the currents I've talked about. It reduces costs, it allays insecurity, it addresses climate change, and it flows from technology innovation. Now, I believe every business needs to put in place an energy efficiency plan covering all its activities. European airlines provide a good example of such an approach. The airline industry estimates that it's improved its fuel efficiency by 70% over the past 40 years via more direct routings, more efficient taxiing on the ground, and less idle time queuing for takeoff slots. The delivery of electric power is another business where there can be major benefits from a holistic approach to energy efficiency. A good example is net metering, a mechanism for encouraging electricity consumers to invest in generation, such as solar panels or wind turbines, which can feed excess power to the grid. Customers who take advantage of net metering have an electricity meter which runs backwards when they're generating more power than they need, generating an instant refund. Another example is so-called smart grids, which have the potential to revolutionize electricity distribution. Such grids are able to deal with variable dispersed inputs and to route electricity more efficiently, leading to fewer idle or wasted generators. Perhaps the biggest energy efficiency challenge, however, is on the side of the consumer rather than the producer. Changing consumer behavior is proving difficult and will require a combination of creative incentives as well as regulation. 
For example, the Energy Savings Trust estimates that 8% of UK households' energy, contributing 4 million tonnes of carbon dioxide annually, is wasted by appliances left on standby. Simple technology fixes, such as flashing LEDs or a timer that turns off appliances after a certain period of time, could make a big difference. Public education will be critical, such as establishing a clear link in people's minds between the electricity supplies they use at home and the large polluting power stations upstream. The fourth and final beacon I'd like to talk about today is what I call making carbon mainstream. I believe it's now virtually certain that carbon will become a mainstream economic cost for business in the coming years and increasingly a basis on which management performance across all sectors will be judged. In my view, businesses need to start planning for carbon now. To assume that there will be no carbon price is to base one's view of the future on the past and to indulge in linear thinking. The reason for my confidence is the global momentum building behind carbon pricing policies. The EU has already enacted the world's first international carbon cap-and-trade scheme. A growing number of American states, along with Australia and New Zealand, are currently designing their own carbon measures. The US Congress is actively debating federal carbon legislation, and the Chinese government has signaled its intent to cut carbon emissions by 10% in the next five years. There is now the prospect of a global agreement to succeed the Kyoto Treaty, with strengthened carbon measures likely to take centre stage. At the same time, increased public awareness and NGO activity is encouraging businesses across multiple sectors to report on their carbon footprint and increasingly to offset their emissions. According to TrueCost, 140 FTSE 250 companies now publish estimates of their emissions as part of their reporting. So given this growing momentum, I believe all businesses need to consider carbon as an emerging economic parameter, just as any sensible business factors assumptions about future exchange rates into their plans. Of course, the journey will not be linear. Both the timings and the means by which carbon pricing develops, first nationally, then regionally, then internationally, will remain highly uncertain. Significant business risks will result, especially for energy-intensive industries, and these need to be managed. I believe the critical path and the source of greatest uncertainty will, of course, be political. The fact is that without compensatory measures, the cost of pricing carbon will hit some groups disproportionately. Carbon-intensive industries, lower-income people who suffer from fuel poverty, and countries with a less efficient industrial base or who have a high carbon generation profile. On the flip side, other groups, such as investors in low carbon technologies, will benefit. The thorny political economic issue of who pays will therefore be central to climate change efforts. The current energy bill debate in the United States provides a good analogy. A stalemate appears to have set in as various interest groups fight over how the burden of providing a public good, in this case reducing dependence on fossil fuels, should be shared between them. Putting in place 
the kind of aggressive carbon legislation that is needed will require acts of real political leadership, putting society as a whole above sectional politics. Of course, this is especially difficult in strongly representative democracies, where institutions are deliberately designed to create checks and balances. It will be even more difficult in the international arena, where the same political dynamics are likely to occur, but between countries, because the international system is even more fragmented and anarchic. And that's why I believe the world needs to create an international climate agency modelled along similar lines to the WTO, with the authority and credibility to manage carbon abatement activity and the emergence of a global carbon price. To conclude, we're living through a period of energy dislocation in a world of diverse energy actors and of complex interdependent trends. The challenge is that there are so many different ways to look at what is happening, and each analytical framework seems to urge a different course of action. I believe the answer is not to fixate on causes and the character of today's energies, energy maelstrom, nor is it to try to pick winners. I believe the best approach is to look at the principles, beacons that will help business to navigate, and I've identified four such principles this evening. Ladies and gentlemen, it's easy to be laid low by the current headlines, but I remain optimistic. With the right political leadership, I believe that energy, and especially the issue of climate change, could be the great cause of our time, a cause that brings people together and galvanizes countries to act as one. And we must not let this opportunity slip away. I'd like to finish with one of my favorite quotations. Speaking at the end of 1862, Abraham Lincoln said the following, The dogmas of the quiet past are inadequate to the stormy present. We must think anew and act anew. We must disenthrall ourselves. Thank you very much. lecture in terms of clarity, precision, timekeeping, and so on, example to many of my colleagues here at the LSE. Um, uh, we would be delighted to take questions. I usually take them in clusters of four or five to give several of you an opportunity to uh, uh, express the concerns you want to raise. A question can generally be something that could be answered with a yes or a no. In other words, not a statement, but we welcome engagements with the main theses of the presentation. So let me, uh, there are roaming mics which will come to you if you raise your hands. So if I could just see where clusters of questions are likely to come in. Let's take one straight to the front here, Professor Caldor, and then we'll take a few from downstairs and come up. Well, thank you for a very wide-ranging lecture. The one issue that I was surprised that you didn't address uh, is the resource curse, and by the resource curse, I don't just mean the economic resource curse, I mean the political resource curse. I mean the fact that most oil-dependent countries are either authoritarian or in conflict, which is a real problem. There are real human rights problems for people living in oil-dependent countries. Uh, and it seems to me that this is sort of part of the trio, along with energy 
energy security and climate change. Indeed, energy security could be rethought of as the problem of the security of people in oil-dependent states. So I'm wondering whether that shouldn't also be added to your agenda for the um, International Climate Agency. May I take the, sure. the, the question? Yeah, I, I think I, first let me say I agree with you. So uh, we're now going to just discuss how to, how to analyze this point. Uh, I think it is more often not, than not the case that, of course, uh, unearned rent, which is what this is about, uh, creates uh, great jealousies, great divisions, and great corruption. Uh, and that happens in all sorts of parts of the world. And it's been uh, an ever-present problem uh, which uh, is very difficult to cure. Some, some, some small steps have been taken, uh, such as making uh, reporting transparent and helping people through to understand getting a political will to do something. But of course, in times of enormous shortage, uh, when people are prepared to invest uh, regardless of the cost, then even that goes out of the window. So I think that uh, I tend to bucket this in, in the area of energy security, I mean, I do think it, m most people looking at this don't quite understand the details, but they'd say, we hear something about political change in Nigeria. We hear something about Venezuela. They all appear to be places where there's lots of money around. I think the other thing that, that is, I think, worrying people, though, is the question of the uh, sovereign funds, which is not actually a resource curse. It's a resource abundance. Again, vast amounts of uh, rent are being poured into these funds and, and not being wasted. I mean, uh, I think it's not the same as it was in the 70s with petrodollars <coughs> being wasted. They're actually being husbanded. <coughs> and the question is, what actually happens to these resources? They are enormous. Uh, and, of course, at $100 a barrel, are growing very rapidly every day. Would you like to press this question a bit more? All right. Thank you. Any more down? Yeah, the mic comes to Michael to the front here. Fourth, three rows back. Yes, lady with the orange top. Hello. Just uh, first a personal point. I worked in BP for quite a long, a long number of years, so I'd like to take this opportunity to acknowledge your role as BP CEO for more than 10 years. I think you've done a great, great job. And my question is. Uh, you touched several points of, about the challenges today, like mature oil fields getting depleted and security supply, increased demand. And uh, so companies, specifically major oil companies, they are, they are big players, and they compete for resources, for technology, for investment, and for people. Um, what do you think? And, and then you address the, key, the four key points of the future. But how do you think the major oil companies... Uh, will address these issues, or are, what are the points they cannot they cannot forget at all to to be able to succeed? And and people is is one of my I think it's one of one of the key assets, and uh, I think they cannot they cannot forget. Yeah, let's take a we'll take a thing. Yep, gentleman behind you. Yeah, a few rows back. I'll take a few from here and then come. Uh, Tyler Chapman, <clears throat> sorry, Tyler Chapman and Climate Change Capital. You talked about the ways that we can bring in a carbon price um, that, that businesses will need to respond to. You've also talked about the need to bring in an international carbon agency. How would you see the price 
imposed on uh, on businesses that would be that would differ from the existing Kyoto system, uh, either cap and trade or a tax, and how would you like to see those changes imposed? Thank you. Thank you. Sort of exemplary questions. Yeah. Yes. At the back, guy with the um, blue shirt. Yeah. I'll take five from here, and the next round will come up. Hello. Um, one energy source that was absent from your presentation was nuclear. I just wonder if you could say a few words about uh, uh, how important you view that. Okay, well, these are quite substantial questions, so I think we'll stop there. And uh, I give you... We've got plenty of time. Let me just... uh, First, thank you for your question. Uh, I I was always struck when I was a CEO of BP, and it remains the case as I now observe the energy scene in its entirety from what I do today, without having a, a company to be concerned about is, is it again and again reminds me of how very small uh, the very big companies are in oil and gas. They control almost nothing, uh, but yet they're very valuable because indeed oil and gas are very valuable. But uh, in terms of what the world has in terms of reserves and production, they control very little. So what they actually do is live on their wits and they've been living on their wits for a very long time. And the only way to live on your wits is to have great people uh, because you have to think of something different to do uh, because the simple and straightforward things like owning resources is actually taken care of by people like uh, Saudi Aramco, uh, to name but one, who quite rightly own their patrimony. So the question then is what to do. And it is, I think, increasingly the case Uh, that uh, technology and technology improvement is the only distinguishing characteristic uh, of uh, big oil companies. And that, I think, is very important. I say distinguishing. They have to do so much more, of course, to do their job, make sure they do business in the right way uh, and uh, have great relationships. It is very interesting that they're, of course, being joined by so many other big companies who have uh, really very good access to people. I was in China uh, a week ago, uh, and uh, when I was there, it was, of course, the case of the world's largest company, uh, by theoretical market capital calculation, uh, became PetroChina, whose stated value, based on 2% of the shares quoted in the Shanghai Exchange, was $1 trillion, uh, which is more than enough to buy Exxon, Shell, and BP, and have some change left over, I think. So, uh, you know, it's quite a big company, but it has tremendous access to people because it's part of a national pride. And I think that's a very different distinguishing characteristic (coughs) we just need to think about. Uh, The gentleman from Climate Change Capital. Uh, I wish I could give you a definite answer on how best to price carbon. Uh, but obviously I can't, and, and that actually is why there are so many business opportunities for carbon for, 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 for uh, carbon pricing and capital formation in this market. Uh, I, I think that, um, of course, an awful lot of carbon pricing will not be uh, explicit. It will be uh, implied. So it's a combination of subsidies, taxes, imposts, uh, incentives in the short term, incentives in the long term, Uh, that will make up the way in which uh, different nations work uh, to think about energy. And I'm often asked, for example, uh, surely uh, renewable alternative energy is just a function of subsidies. And if they went away, 
we'd all be back burning coal. Uh, that's a very often stated uh, statement in certain parts of the energy business. So it's interesting, if you look at the IEA report uh, on world energy, they've come up with this analysis, which I think is quite reasonable, which says that subsidies placed on oil and gas and coal globally amount to $200 billion a year. Subsidies for renewables, including nuclear, which I'll come to in a moment, amount to $33 billion a year. So, if you were wondering, if you just came to the world and, and tried to read what people wanted by their actions, I think you would conclude something very strange. So I think there's plenty of room to go in very ordinary things to do to change energy mix. Now, I think on the more sophisticated side, uh, you know, all markets are manufactured by government fiat in one way or another, laws and regulations, uh, and they will in fact be, I believe, uh, manufactured for carbon credits. I think some difficulties exist on defining exactly how credits are to be made, uh, what actually designated national authorities do, how, their, how, their, how surveillance is put in place, all these things. Equally, I think there are great difficulties as well, and you can see it in the debate in the United States about whether or not there should be a cap and trade, but cap on the price of carbon, uh, which, which I think is a very strange way of, of looking at things. So I, I do think my, my answer to your question is simple but complicated. There will be different markets for different things. I think Europe, the United States, will go with a, a tradable market. I think there will be more places you can make permits. Uh, you can generate them. Uh, I think there will be better surveillance. But I think all of this does need some overarching authority uh, to make it work. I hope very much that we don't find a politically imposed carbon price which is actually so low that it doesn't make any difference at all because it's got to be reasonably high and the consumer has to pay for that. Uh, it has to pay. They have to pay for that to make a difference to the energy mix of the world and hence climate change. And nuclear is very important. It's a very good technology. It needs to be uh, uh, used properly in the right places. Uh, and I think we just need to remember that it too is a technology that can improve uh, over time. I think we are stuck with some, some concerns we have with very early generation nuclear power stations and very early generation handling of waste. I think there's lots of improvements and in fact there are some very great improvements uh, that can be applied today that might actually make all this more acceptable. I think the biggest challenge, of course, is public acceptability and in whose backyard this is to be done. Thank you. I'll take some questions from the top. Yeah. Then the back with his hand right up. And then we'll come to the very back row. Lord Brown, I wonder if you'd like to comment on four reasons why it may be that the fear of global warming is greatly exaggerated. Number one, that it's not at all clear that it's still happening to any significant extent. Number two, that the evidence rather suggests that it's the global warming that causes the carbon dioxide rather than the other way around. Thirdly, that it's not clear that it's man-made carbon dioxide which is 
a big part of it. And fourthly, that in any case, some global warming is rather beneficial rather than the opposite. Food production, for instance, will go up, according to the IPCC, for any increase up to about three degrees. Okay, that's a very clear set of considerations. <laughs> shall we, shall we, do you want to respond to that? Because it's rather, that goes to the heart of part of your argument, doesn't it? Well, I mean, first, thank you for the debate, uh, debating point. It is, of course, impossible to simply say, no, you're not right, uh, because uh, data does show that it is happening. Uh, otherwise, how can you explain uh, the, uh, what is going on in the poles of the Earth? Uh, secondly, that uh, it's very difficult to see how it's otherwise not happening other than man-made because it changes the flux of carbon dioxide in a very, very small way, but it imbalances the scales significantly. And the uh, third point I'd make about global warming is always this, that, that it's a question of how much risk you want to take. You want to live dangerously? Fine. But the question is, how many people really want to do this? And what uh, steps we should take to reduce the risk profile in the world? I've heard lots of debates recently uh, which go to the point of saying, well, we can't do anything about it, so let's, uh, let's let the world adapt, adapt to climate change. I would like to just use this point in, since you've used this way of debating, let me push a point back to you. The most advanced, arguably the most advanced nation in the world is the United States. And Hurricane Katrina flattened uh, several cities. And there were an awful lot of people who were left in those cities. They couldn't adapt. They had nowhere to go. Uh, they were living with blue tarpaulins. And actually some of them are still living like that. They're called the poor people. Uh, and the poor people don't have too many choices. Uh, and uh, if uh, they are asked to adapt to climate change, army or climate somewhere create very different changes to agriculture, they have very few choices to do something about it. So adaptation, I think, is a real question about whether or not that's something that can just be factored in and say, well, that's all right then. I'm absolutely confident uh, that a rich nation like the United States can do it in bulk, in part, although there are some exceptions, and I expect we can do it here, but an awful lot of people can't. Thank you. Let's take two questions at the top. Thank you. Um, my first question is to ask you what, what IOCs can do in relation to NOCs, what, what the issues are going to be and what the factors are in terms of that relationship um, over the coming years. Um, also, I wanted to ask you about gas, um, what, what's going to happen in your view in terms of the market for gas products and gas prices as well, whether there's going to be a gas OPEC. Yes, next year. Yeah. Um, Fadi Burrell was in, <coughs> excuse me, in London last week. Can you hear me okay? Uh, Fadi, I don't know where you are. Sorry, I'm up here. How you doing? Uh, Fadi Burrell was, <laughs> was, was uh, in London last week for the, the launch of the Energy Outlook 2007, and um, they're forecasting a demand in 2030 for oil of 116 million barrels per day, and he expressed concerns about uh, the ability to, to, to meet that demand. Uh, the chief executive of Total, Marjorie, has said that he doesn't see the oil industry getting above 100 million barrels of oil per day. 
Uh, I just wondered if, if, if you have a view on that. And then uh, related to that, um, the president of China, Hu Jintao, I think, uh, announced that he plans to quadruple or has ambitions to quadruple the, the Chinese economy. Um, and I'm wondering uh, what your perspective would be on that in the context of, 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 of the challenges that you identified in your talk. Just one more. Um, yes, lady in the front here. Yeah. Hi. Sorry. Uh, you talking about fossil fuel and supply. You talked about underinvestment. I was um, underinvestment of the. Um, do you? Yeah. I was wondering where do you think the problem of investment is and who can actually act on it? Because I believe that there is a view that is shared by oil companies and OECD countries, and um, OPEC countries. Okay, should we take those? Great, let me start yeah. from the bottom. And then uh, my reference to underinvestment was, of course, the period when, uh, and uh, we forget this uh, point, that for a period between uh, the late 80s and uh, the year 2000, the price of oil was rather lower than it is today, and it averaged below $20 a barrel. So over that period, and, and refining margins were dreadful. Uh, and so over that period, it was very difficult to justify large investments, either by OPEC or non-OPEC. And so people ran down uh, the existing spare capacity. There was lots of capacity which wasn't used, and people used it up. Curiously, it, it left in people's minds a very unusual psychology which went roughly like this. The world has surplus capacity. That's terrific because if you have the surplus capa production capacity, it means there's a cap on prices. So therefore, the world said is, we must have surplus production capacity. It's quite logical. The only question was, who was going to pay for it? Uh, and that, I think, has been the very strange debate. Underinvestment, because there was surplus capacity, leads to no surplus capacity, people paying for uh, extra capacity, but no one's willing to pay for it. So that's the question. And that is the debate that you see constantly between producers and consumers. The producers, OPEC, say, give me certainty of demand. And the consumers say, give me certainty of supply. And uh, everybody is trying in some ways to fix the market, you know, without uh, realizing, I think, either side's imperatives. But again, you can see this, this very debate you know, in the newspapers today and yesterday. So underinvestment is, is, is but inevitable. There will always be cycles of overshooting and undershooting. <coughs> Uh, I think uh, oil production peaks. There, there is a lot of oil uh, in the world. There really is. Uh, and, and, and I think these uh, stories of uh, peak oil and shortage just, just aren't right. I mean, I was up in Canada but the other day looking at what was happening on the heavy oil, the tar sands there. Uh, and really, the, the resources are infinite. They're infinite and they're quite economic, although environmentally problematic. Uh, in today's uh, environment. So I'm not sure that picking a number and saying it'll peak is the right way to go. And after all, as everybody knows in this audience, supply and demand always match. There is, by definition, no difference. Uh, and so they always match. So, you know, we have a lot of problems about, you know, supply shortage and stuff like that. But it's amazing what happens. 
uh, when uh, the realities come. Uh, and the same with the Chinese uh, economy. Uh, the Chinese economy is becoming more energy efficient, will continue to be more energy efficient, and they will pick no one source of energy uh, for uh, supply. It will be everything. Uh, vast amounts of coal, but also, for example, Inner Mongolia wind power. Very large developments in Inner Mongolia uh, in transporting wind. Large amounts of solar power. Uh, large amounts of biofuels of different sorts, not, I think, uh, wheat, not food-based, but non-food crops. As to the ga gas, ga gas is just another energy source. Uh, it, it has a tough time because it keeps overshooting and undershooting. It can't quite get its inventory right, uh, uh, especially in the United States, which controls the gas price of the world. I think, however, if you look at people's behavior, in spite of the abundance of coal reserves, you can see this in financial transactions, in spite of abundance of coal reserves, people won't give people permits to build coal-fired power stations. And there's going to be a very large amount of gas used to generate electricity. And as to the IOCs, well, again, I think uh, the relationship between IOCs and NOCs keeps shifting. It's always shifted. Uh, in the end, you know, companies, if they have no role, go out of existence. But uh, IOCs have a role in that actually they are the people who best market the product. And they need to remember that. They best market the product. They don't own the resources as much as the NOCs, but they certainly know how to deal with the market. Yep. We'll take a few more. Lord Brown flew in from New York today, so um, he's already had a very long day. Yes. Lady up there, I know you've been waiting anxiously. Please. Thank you. Good evening. Uh, my name is Andy. I'm doing my master's degree here at the LSC. And I wanted to ask you, Lord Brown, you mentioned... You put the mic closer to your mouth. You've mentioned uh, technological progress being a key factor in um, the energy uh, change in the world. But um, I'm wondering about technological lock-in because it seems like our uh, economy is uh, built on an infrastructure that um, is basically burning fossil fuels. Uh, we have uh, petrol stations, grids. Uh, that's a lot of sunk investments. How do you see the change coming? Okay. Let's try and get a mic from right to the very end. Yes, you'll be waiting very patiently. And then I'll come back down here. We'll have some mic in a minute. Good evening. Um, I was just going to ask about the global... Uh, energy security. Um, what do you think the role of Kazakhstan is going to be and uh, its contribution? And the, uh, specifically, how do you think the delay that's been announced on at the Kazakhstan oil field is going to affect it? Thank you. Hello. Um, I was wondering, basically, uh, your uh, reputation um, is is sort of uh, preceded by your venture into Russia um, and uh, you spoke before about energy security as a concern for American um, sort of, you know, uh, act political people, persons, etc. What did you learn from uh, going into Russia and what do you learn and see the way that uh, the, the uh, Russian government is squeezing at the moment? Gentleman behind you. Uh, I was concerned about you. You, have a, you paint a very optimistic view, I think, of 
how the IOCs are going forward in relation to climate change and adaptation to climate change. Um, and and it's a picture which I think maybe stood well maybe a couple of years ago, but the last couple of years have seen companies, it seems to me, moving away from that. For example, BP not following through with the Miller Field, C CCS, and the restructuring seems to be de-emphasizing alternative energy, and Shell, for example, on the other side, moving into selling off its PV unit and moving into uh, tar sands. All this seems to me to emphasize the fact that the IOCs are actually not really, they're going back to the knitting, they're going back to oil and gas, and they're not addressing the climate change challenge as much as they were two years ago. Good evening. Um, you've mentioned that carbon capture and storage can have a significant impact on our ability to address the issues at hand. And maybe my, connection is, uh, my question is connected to the previous one. Why then haven't we seen full-scale CCS projects going ahead? Have, has, have government, is, sorry, is government policy perhaps not addressing the priority areas by supporting wind farms um, rather than carbon capture and storage-enabled power stations? Right. We are, we, that's already a, a, a substantial weight of questions. I'll just take one from the gentleman there with the corner up. And then I think, oh, my goodness, we'll, we'll gather a few more. Why, why don't we and do these and have one more go? Going, going back to Fatty Birol, um, last week he said we're going to need between 27 and 45, sorry, we're going to need between 27 and 45 million barrels a day of new Mike production. Mike to your mouth. It's got to be closer. Of new production, okay, in the next 10 years. So that's about half the amount just to stand still, okay? So that, because the decline rates are between 4 and 8%, approximately, just from the old fields. All the giant fields in the world are currently in production. There's only one left, which is supergiant fields. The only one left is Kashgan. Where is this 30 million barrels a day going to come from just for us to stay still? And if it's from OPEC, why are they going to give it to us? Okay, well, we're going to have a, a final round after this, so I can come back to some of you right. in a moment. Can I, I think I want to just make a few general points and then specifically. I think if all the things I've said, I've said two things which I think are very basic and very simple, that all energy sources have to go hand in hand right now. We can't afford to pick a winner. There's no way of understanding where the winner is. And so we're going to have low-carbon energy and high-carbon energy coexisting for a period until we get, uh, and for some period, uh, until it's clear of what technologies work and how governments and how people respond to the different types of energy. So I think it's very important to remember that. Now, I, I think that uh, technology progress, therefore, is designed to create more choices for people. Say, for example, I'll give you... So there are lots of examples. Right now, uh, there's an awful lot of ethanol being made in the United States of America. It's being made from corn, which is a food crop, but as a result, corn prices have doubled over the period of uh, this. It's unintended consequence. But the other problem is that corn-based ethanol certainly cannot admit to the Hall of Fame uh, when it comes to climate protection, climate change protection. It does nothing of the sort it's only for energy security. It's about the same carbon content as gasoline. Now, what to do about it? Well, you can certainly produce biofuels with very low carbon content, Brazilian sugar. Uh, but you could also do it with wood, uh, 
cellulose, uh, but you have to break it down. And so there are vast numbers of minds working on this, everyone from Craig Venter to, you know, uh, Mr. Kosler to Kleiner Perkins. Everybody is working on a technology breakthrough to be able to use woody material, cellulosic material, uh, to make uh, an alcohol which can be used for transportation of cars. <coughs> and that will happen. It's a matter of time, and you can never predict when technology breakthroughs occur, uh, but it's definitely going to happen. It will change the way in which we think about uh, how we use the world's resources. And we have to find something to make uh, something we can drive around with, and liquids are the uh, most dense store of energy which is usable. Uh, and we, have to we have to find something which will do that, and we will. So I think that will carry on, and I, I believe, therefore, we will change the balance of energy resources in the world. It looks as if not much is changing, but actually quite a lot is changing already. We're now at the point where I think it's changing quite rapidly. We're going from uh, tremendous dependence on fossil fuel, which we still have very high dependence, to some more choices, more choices as we go forward. Uh, I am... Um, I wasn't intending to be optimistic about the IOCs in regard to climate change. Uh, I wasn't actually being optimistic about anybody. Uh, um, I think that um, what I would say is I, I do believe everyone has to adapt uh, in this area. They have to adapt. The reason they have to adapt is if society wants it, they will surely charge people for use for the externalities. And that is what is going to happen. Now, where people put their business focus depends. I mean, some people may decide to have a strategy uh, which says, well, that's all very well, but we can't compete in low-carbon energy. We'll just carry on doing oil and gas. You know, there'll be a good livelihood there, and we'll let someone else do renewable and alternative energy. And I have a sense the world is sort of dividing like that now. Uh, and it is because of proportionality, you know, renewable and alternative energy is smaller than oil and gas. It's because of skills. It's because of an interest, because of the way you recruit people, all sorts of things like that. And you have a sense when you look around this area uh, that while there's no one big, uh, there are lots of people, and one day there will be someone who's big in renewable and alternative energy, uh, and it probably won't be an existing plan. Probably won't be an existing plan. As to CCS, uh, carbon capture and storage, the, the only reason why this is not happening, and it must happen, is again, uh, if there's no value attributed to capturing carbon, the externality is not priced, uh, and it's not priced appropriately, then this is just not going to happen. Uh, and uh, the question is getting the pricing right. I think most studies show that unless there is an alternative use for the carbon dioxide, uh, which is in the enhanced recovery of oil, the, the carbon pricing needed to, keep, uh, to make CCS work on a sufficiently large scale is something like 50 to $80 a tonne. And that was with the old exchange rates, so I'm not quite sure what it means today. But 50 to $80 a tonne is the sort of area which is needed. And please remember that uh, carbon has never priced, uh, traded above $30 at the moment. So... It, um, it needs a big shift, and that, I think, will make all the difference. Um, let's see if I can group the others. Um, 
Once in a while, there are giant oil fields found, and there are giant resources found. Sometimes they're found uh, within existing uh, finds. For example, the technology improvement in the oil sands in Canada has dramatically changed its uh, fortunes. The so-called SAGD technology, uh, which has clearly opened up the potential enormously in that area. Equally, exploration occasionally turns up something uh, different and new. I see there's a find in Malaysia. Ghana has found some oil offshore uh, very recently, unexpectedly, so, uh, in a fan structure. Uh, and you're absolutely right that Kashigan is the largest field, which is yet, I think, the largest field undeveloped uh, in the world. But it will be developed uh, when, uh, I think, when people get their minds around today's oil price. I think that's what it takes. So the question is, the range is very big. Uh, where we'll be in the range will depend on opportunity. Will I think it's a long way away? And I think on present trends, there could be some very big changes in the way in which alternative energies are supplied to the market, not least if there are breakthroughs in biofuels uh, which can make them from non-food material. As to Russia, I, I would just say this. I, I think uh, one of the big lessons I've always learned and one of the points I've made uh, this evening uh, is that flexibility is really very important indeed. There's a time to go to a place. There's a time to leave. There's a time to change arrangements. All these times are there. and You've just got to figure out when they occur and do something about it. Uh, Russia's no exception. Uh, it's... Uh, it's uh, very possible to do business in Russia, uh, they, but it requires, like any country, uh, a license to operate. A license to operate is difficult to acquire when you're dealing with the nation's patrimony, oil and gas and minerals. But if you behave yourself, uh, you can get that license. It doesn't mean to say the license is always there. Um, a, round, a final round of brief questions. Yes, the lady, the hand up over there. And then gentlemen, come to you. And then there was a lady up here who wanted to ask. Thank you. Hello, Lord Brown. Um, this is a serious question I've been um, wanting to ask for a couple of years. Um, how do I go about getting an oil field named after me? <laughs> My name's Divya Patel, if you'd All like right, to make a note of that. Pass the mic over. Straight <laughs> Lord Brown. Um, you've made points about flexibility and security of supply, and I was wondering if you, if you could comment on the wisdom of a country destroying part of its indigenous fuel supply, i.e. coal. At the top, yes. Thank you. Thank you. Um, my question was about trading, actually is in the future with the decline of the dollar uh, right now, people talk about maybe non-dollar denominated contracts and futures. Do you see that as a reality and would it really matter? Great discipline, short questions, fantastic, thank you. Closer, just bring it closer. Um, go back to the question uh, sort of earlier about thinking about the political and social implications of some of the energy security on certain um, oil-dependent countries. And I'm wondering if you could elaborate a little further on where you think responsibility with oil companies themselves 
um, lie or stop in such places where, where conflict is generated um, by very much the, the trade um, in oil, specifically thinking about Sudan. Hello, uh, I'm Hideki Aota from Japanese newspaper Asahi. I have two short questions, if I may. So first one is, uh, you mentioned the shifting power in the oil industries from Seven Sisters, OPEC, and consumers, and OPEC again. Who do you think is the most powerful player now and after? Because OPEC ministers are often saying that uh, the price of oil today is out of control. So who is the most powerful one? And the second one is the price of carbon in the future. So do you have any concerns uh, the surging of the carbon price because of the speculation? Thank you. Because of, like, yeah, we didn't catch your because of the speculated money, or Specula speculation. Speculative. Speculative. Speculative money. Yeah, thank you. Right. Penultimate question, and, I, and I'm asking the last mm -hmm. one. So just one more. Hands up. Get a sort of, yeah, let's get someone right at the back in the corner. I want you to know I'm choosing arbitrarily. There's no methods here. Yes. Hello. Um, Lord Brown, you, you proposed um, uh, an international agency to oversee the emergence of a uh, global carbon market. Um, what would its role be and what would it look like? Okay. And if, if I may just abuse the chair, just for a moment, ask you two short questions. One is the Stern report. Um, Nicholas Stern is now at the LSE, and we think about his report a lot. Do you think he got it basically right? And do, do you, from, from where you've sat for some time and where you sit now, do you think the broader recommendations of the Stern report are the right way to go? And secondly, you, 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 you had a, a nice throwaway line called, with the right political leadership, we can move to a sort of new, more flexible, complex energy regime. The question, of course, is always where the right political leadership comes from. I think we can say in recent decades that there's been evidence of it emerging in some states in the United States, in the European Union and so on, but there are also great conflicts of interest here that underpin the politics of energy, a new north-south divide in some senses. One hears often, for example, in Davos, people saying from India and China that climate change is a new sort of Western conspiracy to suppress the East's development at a time when the East is about to take off. In other words, real serious political divisions. Your program you outlined, including a new international climate agency, which I strongly support as well, requires an unusual thing, that is to say, strong human collaborative activity across borders. Where do you see the momentum for that now, and how can we build on it? Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I, I have a time budget of uh, yeah, you have six, six minutes, minutes. Exactly. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, which means I can't even read back the questions. Uh, I, I think, uh, let me say several things. First, uh, it's never a good idea to destroy an option for energy, uh, but uh, in this country, of course, an awful lot of the coal is in seams which have been up till now uh, uneconomic. Uh, and so uh, there was a rule, I think, that uh, coal seam had to be bigger than your, uh, from the elbow to the tip of your finger, 
uh, otherwise it couldn't be mined. But, you know, coal, one of the big things about coal, if a breakthrough could be made to gasify it underground, bring out the gas and then restore the carbon dioxide, wouldn't that be wonderful? Another technology <coughs> breakthrough. And these things all have their moment. They all have their moment. Uh, Non-denominated oil has been around a long time. The last time the dollar was weak, uh, same thing happened. Uh, we were going to do it in yen, uh, and then we, did, we didn't like the yen, so we were going to price oil in SDRs. Uh, it all depends, I think, about how long this all uh, happens. Uh, there's no right or wrong reason, uh, but it's been priced in oil in dollars. It'll probably remain so uh, because of inertia, unless there's some cataclysmic change, and I think it would be very difficult to change markets. Uh, I think uh, responsibility uh, of oil companies in conflict areas is very complex. I don't want to answer it in a glib phrase. Uh, I would say that uh, oil companies are, uh, commercial oil companies, of course, are non-political players. They must remain so, and they must absolutely abide by international agreements. So, Sudan, for example, is, is absolutely off limits. Uh, I, I think that uh, all and everything must be done. I mean, in the end, you know, it's uh, sort of like, um, since I'm not an economist, I can sort of break all the rules here uh, at the LSE. I, I mean, I think, you know, what you have to know about development economics is two things, you know, what's in people's heads and what the rules are like. Uh, and, and if you could just, you know, I think when uh, companies in a place they must move heaven and earth to educate, i.e. what's in people's heads, and to illustrate, i.e. What, what could the rules be like. But in the end, they have no force of law, they have no capability for uh, imposing their way, and they're simply offering these opportunities, and they must do it in a very even-handed way. I think it helps. In my own experience, it helped in Colombia a little bit. Uh, it was controversial to do business there. It was controversial to work. Uh, with both the paramilitaries and the guerrilla, uh, but I think it began to change things a bit. But really, what it does need, of course, is massive political leadership, uh, which successive Colombian presidents have given it, with some exceptions. Uh, and uh, who is more powerful? Uh, well, in the end, of course, it's the person who owns the most, I think, in this area, by definition, is the most powerful, and that has to be OPEC, because in the end, it is a cartel. It has its own ways, uh, and it is the, the largest block uh, on the block, if you will, block without a K and block with a K. It's, it's the largest one on the block because all the other actors are actually all independent and working quite separately and differently. So they are very powerful, uh, but even powerful people uh, can only do so much. And if there's no more supply or... Uh, they are uh, reluctant to invest more, then uh, the market will control. I mean, I think the market in this area goes from periods of controlling itself as if it were a market, so led by the market to led by OPEC and led by the market. And it all depends on overshooting. That's really in investment terms. Uh, international agency, uh, I think the best thing I'd say is wouldn't it be good as if it were modelled with aspects of the IMF and aspects of the WTO. It needs to do several things. It needs to enforce uh, the, uh, the status of carbon, but more importantly, it also needs to stabilize. It needs to have a resource which will stabilize the way in which the interchange of carbon 
can take place between nations. Now, uh, finally, uh, before I come to the chairman's questions, uh, uh, very few oil fields are named after people. Uh, and, uh, very, very few. Uh, some have been, uh, but uh, I, I think it's better to try something else, you know, because <laughs> the thing about oil fields is they, they do deplete eventually. <laughs> uh, now, uh, Nick Stein's report is, uh, is uh, the broad conclusions have to be right, that uh, to do it now rather than later is better, uh, and to remember the proportionalities of what's needed here compared with, let's say, the U.S. defense budget. So I think, uh, basically, I think it's right. I know it's very controversial. Many, many professional economists, including many of my friends, I do have friends who are professional economists, uh, they, uh, they, do, they, they argue and debate a lot of the analysis. But I think the broad conclusions have to be right, it seems to me. Um, how do I see this happening? I, I, the answer is, of course, it's all messy. And if there's one thing I talked about today, it's, it's all very real. You know, there's no real model here. There's no archetype that you can say, this is the way, and everyone's going to do it. Because they're just not. They're just going to all be disagreeable people, like people always are, uh, and have their own vested interests and all the normal things. I do think, though, that there is a combination of the EU, the United States, and China, where if there's a will, something extraordinary can happen. And it probably takes a whole bunch of new leadership, because it's something that a new leader might want to attach her or his future to. Uh, and a great... Uh, I mean... Uh, it's not for the first time people have said, you know, if we really, if we had the sort of leadership that was based on numbers and details, really Europe wouldn't have been reconstructed after the war. Uh, but actually it was, and it was because there was some extraordinary leadership, and there was need, uh, and all sorts of things were set to one side. There's very little in this world today, actually, that can do that. We're all fussed about details and, you know, this, that and the other. But actually the thing that could pull us together is actually climate change uh, and is actually that combination of leadership that might appear, and I hope it does appear, uh, who really is determined to do something about it, not just talk about it. But I think we all have to hope that's the case uh, because that is the optimistic future of the world. Thank you very much. Thank you.